The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Almighty God, we sang and have thought about things of, of great magnitude, of eternal weight and consequence. No one can say how many people got crucified in the Roman Empire in the, the long years in which they executed criminals in that manner. No one can say how many, but this one crucifixion that we just sang about and thought about changed the creation, changed eternity. Some just saw it as one more. Some still today see it as just an event in history. But we see in it as you walk that road and as you go up the hill and as you hang there and die, we see in it the will, the gracious determination of God to save people. And we wonder at it and praise you for it and say thank you. Father, we have that in front of us this morning from the Gospel of Luke. And will you help us to think well about this passage and to understand it? To feel the the gravity and the glory in it both and to marvel and to rejoice. Lord, would you bring us out of this marveling and rejoicing? Will you save some today, perhaps? And will you draw those of us who already know you, who already are in relationship with you, draw us into great thankfulness and rest? Renew us. Make clear your word and clear away all distractions. Spirit of God, have your way here in this room. We do not pretend to think that in our wisdom and logic and our speech and listening that we can accomplish supernatural work, the changing of the human heart. We ask you to do that. Apart from you, we can't. So please come now and have your way here with us, this people. Make Christ known. Lift him up. For his glory and for our good, we pray it. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Somebody adjust the tin can sound, please. Turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter 23 and the crucifixion of Jesus. We've been drawing near to this moment for some time now, really throughout the entire Gospel of Luke, but our anticipation of it has grown as we've listened to Jesus use the Passover meal that he shared with his disciples to explain and predict this event, his body given up in death his blood shed to make a new covenant, all so that God's wrath might pass over a people and fall on him instead. He taught this on Thursday night around the table there in the upper room. Then they traveled out of the city to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed in agony as he considered this coming sacrifice. He prayed looking 
Father, if there is some other way, let that way be, but not my will, yours be done. And then Judas the betrayer showed up leading the arresting crowd and the leaders. And though Jesus was the one to be arrested and then later questioned or tried in six different settings, it's apparent throughout the whole thing that Jesus is completely in charge of everything. Using his authority, using his power to assure that this all gets done that it all comes to pass, awful as it is, he is determined to embrace death so as to redeem. Even though he's not guilty of anything. One of the points made last week. As he faced his trial before the official judge, Pilate, and Herod, again and again we heard this testimony, he is completely innocent. He's innocent of all the charges against him. He's not guilty of anything. He is, in fact, righteous. Perfectly so. But the whole world, crowds, soldiers, leaders, Jews and Gentiles alike, everyone all rejects him and condemns him anyway. Exactly as he planned. He stands condemned to die in the place of wicked Barabbas. The unrighteous one lives and goes free as the righteous one is condemned and heads to the cross a model for us of what's going on here, which brings us to our passage. I'll read these verses 26 to 49 of Luke 23 and then draw three observations from it. If you've lived in America, and most of the world, in fact, you've heard this story. If you've ever been to church on Christmas, you've You've heard this Easter. You've heard this. If you've, if you've been to church ever, you've probably heard something about this. It's the pivot point of history. Listen. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
There's also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanging railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. The word of the Lord in Luke. Three observations, relatively straightforward. Here's the first. The cross brings judgment. The cross brings judgment. On the one hand, this is completely obvious. The words of the criminals, criminal in verse 40, 41, says as much, they are criminals. They have been rightly tried. They have been found guilty. They have been justly judged. And they are condemned to die here on the cross as is appropriate and right. The legal judgment has come to them on purpose. That's the goal, judgment. And it's also the goal of the Jewish leaders and the crowds with respect to Jesus, in a way, at least in part. They, of course, just want to get him out of the way. They are driven by bias, and the crowd's driven by some, some massive groupthink. But to some degree, they also do think that Jesus is guilty of blasphemy and of disturbing the peace, of 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 ruining the, the peace and the harmony of the, of the community of God. And so they read God's law, the end of Deuteronomy chapter 21, and they see written there that if anyone commits a crime punishable by death, as they think Jesus has, and is hanged on a tree, like is being done in crucifixion, that then the curse of God rests on such a one. Deuteronomy tells them, and they want that, that kind of judgment. They want Jesus dead, and they want Jesus, the blasphemer in their minds, cursed by God as a statement to everyone. He's wrong. He's evil. Look. Look at him hanging there. Look at God's judgment on him. He's cursed. In other words, to see, to see where they're coming from, you can kind of turn this around and say, they want him dead because they, they want him out of the way, but they don't want him to just, for instance, be beaten to death in the streets. 
they wouldn't have been content if he, in one of his passings across the Sea of Galilee, for instance, if he drowned or if he'd caught one of the diseases that he healed and then died of a disease or in some other way was, was killed. They, they wouldn't want that. He'd solve one problem, he'd be out of the way and they'd be left in power, but that wouldn't be sufficient because he wouldn't be judged and condemned by God. For that, they need him to hang on a tree. They need the judgment of the cross because it uniquely shows God's opinion. It broadcasts, cursed is this false Jesus, this false Messiah. Cursed by me, the Lord. If God was really for him, like Jesus so boldly claims again and again, God would never allow him to come to this, to be mocked and shamed and hung up under curse to die. But look, there he hangs. The cross brings judgment on him. We're right. And it does bring judgment on him. The scripture is not broken. There's a man hanging on a tree under the curse of God, exactly like the people want, and ironically, beautifully, gloriously, exactly like God wants. We'll come to that in a minute. So there's this, there's this judgment for these men who are hanging on the cross in different ways. But there's more here to consider, something unexpected and sobering. Luke skips over the brutal beating that Jesus would have received from the Romans as part of the crucifixion. The other Gospels tell us about that. But he was beaten heavily, which is why in verse 26, as he staggers towards Golgotha, the place of the skull, because the hill outside of the city kind of looked like a skull a little bit. So the place of the skull, or Golgotha, Calvary, same word, different languages. As he staggers towards Calvary, he's too weak to continue because he was so heavily beaten. He would have been carrying the large cross beam on his shoulders. The, the vertical stake is already in the ground at the execution site. He would have been carrying like, think of like a large timber like a railroad tie maybe, think of something like that, on his shoulders to which he's going to be nailed and then hoisted up on the vertical beam. Very heavy, and he's too weak to continue. So he, he's, he, can't, he can't carry on, and the, and the Romans, they aren't going to touch that thing. So they draft somebody, and we have his name. This is history. They draft a guy out of the crowd, and he carries the cross as Jesus shuffles forward. And the street, see the scene, the street is lined. It is jammed with people. And the city is full of, full of people, the crowds. They are, they are behind him and they are around him. They are mocking him and jeering him and watching. And some women weeping. Mourning and lamenting for him, it says in verse 27. Perhaps because this was a traditional thing to do. There were people whose job it was to mourn at deaths and funerals. Maybe that's all it is, but it's, it's also possible that they are in some way sensitive to the fact that Jesus is getting the shaft, and it's awful. And they are broken over that. That shouldn't be. They are lamenting such a tragedy. And Jesus, weak, disheveled, his back torn to a pulp by the whip, 
crown of thorns causing blood, the gouges, blood running down his face and his hair, his head. He has no beauty here that anyone would desire or admire him. He has no form of majesty or, or that would attract anybody here. He is despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief and about to be acquainted with more of it. He looks every part, the doomed man here. And he stops and speaks to these women. Daughters of Jerusalem, which is not a rebuke. You can hear, you can hear it in the terminology there, daughters of Jerusalem. It's, it's almost tender. It's very personal. Personable. It's important that we, that we hear that because it tells us his tone here. He's not an angry, con- condemned man lashing out at people. He's not saying, you're going to get yours. That's not an attitude at all. Personally, almost tenderly, daughters of Jerusalem, you are right to weep. Something lamentable is happening This cross brings judgment indeed. But not how you're thinking. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your own people. Like I did in chapter 19, when I looked out over the city and I saw its coming future, see your future and weep. That's the kind of weeping that is most appropriate for now. For behold, this cross of mine, it brings a judgment that is truly dreadful for Jerusalem and for the people who are sending me out to it, for they are sending me away and are missing me, are missing the time of their visitation are missing the offer, are missing the open door to the feast, are missing the kingdom, are missing heaven, missing hope, missing life as they send me out. And so then what is coming to them and to you? Dreadful, dreadful judgment. He again refers to what he's already mentioned before. The days are coming when Jerusalem will be wiped clean down to the ground. A destruction so awful that ironically in a flip, people who have never had children will be most fortunate because they won't have kids to watch suffer and die. People will cry out for the mountains to collapse on them and crush them in a landslide so they can somehow die quickly and not have to face the full fury of the wrath of God. Somehow another be hidden from the face of him and if, if, this, if you're looking at this and you're seeing what's coming to the, to the green wood, that which has life in it, what will come to that which is dead and dry? It's imagery of fire and judgment. Green wood's hard to burn, but dry wood, what happens? It burns hot and quick and completely. That's what's coming. Total destruction. Judgment comes with the cross. 
This broke Jesus' heart of compassion in chapter 19. And he mentioned it again in chapter 21, and now he brings it up here as he heads to the cross. A most sober and sorrowful warning, not just to Jerusalem, but to all people of all places at all times who send Jesus away and miss him. To reject Christ, to crucify Jesus, to reckon him as if dead to you, is to condemn and destroy your own self. It brings judgment and destruction to you. And far from reveling in that, Jesus weeps over it. Look at the heart of God here. Even in the moment when he's about to be nailed to the cross beam, he's not saying, you're going to get it. He's saying, oh, what are you doing? Do you know it's coming because of this? To you. And he tells us that so that we would respond that way to the world when we see it rejecting, so that we would weep also and not be, not be angry or proud or in some way wrong-spirited, but would be broken-hearted about it. And most importantly, so that we would turn from this kind of response to Jesus, if that's where we are. So what are you doing with this Jesus? There are many, many reasons to embrace Jesus. And many of them come up as we move from passage to passage or as we considered the varied kindness of God in Jesus. There are tons of reasons to listen to him and to trust him. He gives meaning to life. He gives a lasting, solid basis for, for self, for personal identity. He helps us understand who we are, what's going on with us, where we're going, he gives a sense of hope and joy and security as we see and consider his good and wise and strong control of all the circumstances of life. We, we kind of have a, a place to rest. All of that and more is true, and all of that is good reason to embrace Jesus. But our core fundamental problem is not joylessness or insecurity so on. Our great human problem is the judgment of God that is coming upon the world because of our sin. What are you doing with this Jesus? He's the only answer to that problem. Many people then, all through history, and still today, many people consciously reject him, wanting nothing to do with him. Sometimes that has some hostility in it, sometimes it doesn't. It's just a no. And at other times, maybe that's not you, but there's another maybe approach that says, I'm not going to say no, but I'm just not really that interested because I'm not really very religious. I don't give a, a lot of time or a lot of thought to spiritual things or I kind of make up my own combination of spiritual things that I don't really want to focus on. I don't think it's, it's worth my time to give much consideration to Jesus. It's, it's more polite, but please notice it's the same. In the end, it does not matter how it is that you are not a follower of Jesus. It matters that you are not a follower of Jesus. 
And the same can be said of many people who think very positively of Jesus, in fact. It is very common in America today still to grow up hearing a lot about Jesus, to be extremely familiar with this story and many other stories, and to have some kind of an, of an affinity for him, some kind of a positive feel, to have grown up in church or around religious people who maybe have some respect for him. But the question is always, are you a follower of his? This Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, as he reveals himself here, the one who is fully God, the second person of the one triune God, there is one God who exists forever in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And here is the Son who became a man at a point in history for this very moment. That Jesus. The question always and only is, are we a people, are you a person who is a follower of, who has trusted that Jesus alone? That's going to take us on to the second point, but the second point makes no sense until the first point does. There is, common to all the world, there is in the world an unrighteousness that sets us at odds with God and brings upon all of the world the judgment of God. Commonly, we don't like to think about that. Certainly don't like people talking about that. And a woman... God has told us clearly, here's what I require, here's what good is, here's what righteousness is, and he lays it out in front of us. Jesus himself summarized it in Luke. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, with all of your money, with all of your schedule, with all of your feelings, with all of your inclinations, with all of your hobbies, with all of your work, with all of your all. Total allegiance. And love your neighbor as yourself. And there isn't a one of us that does that. There is no one righteous, no, not one. We discover that when we look at our lives, our own life's wreckage. And we see it when we see our own selfishness. That the first and most important person to you is you. You are bent towards yourself and away from God and inclined so very quickly to set him aside, to send him out, to reckon him as if dead to you. Watch what happens when some circumstance that displeases you bumps into and ruins your day or your week or your life. There is not a your will be done. There is a why, what do you do? Why do you do this to me? What happens when you bump into a commandment, a law of God that you don't like? There is not an instinctive, your will be done, but there is a resistance. In our natures, we are bent to send him out. It is an insanity, and it is universal. 
and to send Jesus away. To turn away God from us and to go our own way is devastating. That's what we are in our natures. And when that makes sense, when that sits on us like this, and I want it to sit on us like this, sometimes I, I think we feel like that's, that's burdensome, that's depressing, that's, isn't that wrong? No, that's right. Because it's the truth. And it's not until this is felt and is real and weighs on you and feels devastating and you see yourself in the the shoes of those weeping women caught short. I thought this was about you, Jesus, and how bad things are for you. You're saying this is about how bad things are for me because I'm sending you away? Oh, no. No. Not until that moment, then does the glory of the second point, the glory, the glory of the second point, come fully home to you and light you up with joy. And I mean the second point should light you up with joy, but it will not until the first one does this, and crushes you. Theologically, we would say, Grace only makes sense, mercy only makes sense in the context of law. Feel the law. Feel your law breaking. And now, feel more than that. Something better, the second point. The cross brings salvation. The cross brings salvation. Right alongside of the obvious judgment, we find a surprising discussion about salvation. Shocking, in fact, because this is so sobering. Let's walk to it. Verse 39. One of the condemned criminals, it says, railed at Jesus, which could also be rendered blasphemed him because of what he says and how he says it and who he's talking to. He says, essentially... So you're some kind of divine big shot, right? So you're the Messiah, right? Well, why don't you do something big shot worthy and save yourself and us while you're at it? That's his attitude, railing at him, blasphemy. He doesn't for a moment believe any of this Messiah business. He doesn't for a moment believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He's just angry and mocking, which earns him a rebuke from the other criminal, who maybe at first also mocked with him, but now he's different. Verse 42, Jesus, he says. Jesus. Which if you were to read this through this gospel, that that might stop you a little short because most of the time he's called Lord or Master or Teacher or Rabbi or Jesus, son of David, maybe. Not every single time, but almost every single time, almost, that people address him, even his disciples, even his closest inner three disciples, they usually use a title. 
This man just calls him by name, Jesus. Which is oddly personal and doubly surprising because of what he says next. He thoroughly believes he deserves a title. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. You are the king. Headed to your kingdom. That, what that placard says above your head, this is the king of the Jews, it's true. You are the king. You are about to head, you are heading to, you are about to come sit on the throne. But I'm speaking to you personally, Jesus when you get there and when you enact that kingdom of yours, remember me, please. Feel the situation here. This man fears God. He just rebuked the other criminal in that point in verse 40. He fears God. He's at the point of death. He's facing eternity, rushing up at him, and he is extremely clear that just about the next thing he's going to see is God Almighty on his judgment throne. And if this man, Jesus, is just an imposter and a blasphemer like all the religious leaders and everybody else I know says so, this criminal just sealed his eternal fate. by taking sides with the one that God is cursing right before he steps to the throne to be judged. This is an immense statement in this moment. This man goes all in on Jesus just before the last card in his life is turned. It is incredible. He trusts himself to Jesus alone, having already acknowledged that he deserves the curse of God that he's getting. Here is the model of what we are to do with this Jesus. Cast all hope on him alone. Which by nature the thing is to place no hope Whatsoever in anything else, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are coming to the throne of your kingdom. Please receive me into it, not because of what I've done, but despite what I've done. It's all true. That's what I am, and that's what I deserve. Despite that, please, just because you decide to in your mercy, just because you say so, will you please receive me in with you? Save me by grace, something I do not deserve. That's my only hope. He does nothing else. Nothing else. He's hanging on a cross. He does nothing else. He just banks all hope on Jesus such that if he's wrong, he's totally doomed. But this is what he does, and this is faith, all by itself with no hedge bet backing it up. Simple, pure faith in Jesus to be the Christ and to save him by grace alone. That's my only hope, so help me God.
says the criminal. And Jesus responds, Truly I say to you, here's that same statement we've seen so many times throughout for one last time here. Jesus' statement of underline for emphasis, this is true. And it's singular, spoken only to that one, not to both of them. I once heard somebody say, maybe you've heard this, that there were two criminals and only one was saved. One was saved so that we might not despair, but not both, that we might not presume. This is singular, spoken to the one of them. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I'm going to my glory. You're right. I'm going to take the wrath. My body will go to the grave, but I'm going to step into glory. I'm going to step into heaven, into paradise, not years and years and years from now, but right imminently. And you'll be with me too. Not him, you. Here's a stunning promise of deliverance. Salvation brought to this condemned man here on the cross because of the cross. This is the very center of the gospel of God's grace. The gospel, the good news of what gospel means. Here's the good news of God's grace, of God's given undeserved blessing that this condemned, hopeless person, condemned, hopeless people who do not and indeed cannot do anything to clean up their act, who do not and indeed cannot do anything to make ourselves righteous. There is no one righteous. The fact is that all the world is unrighteous and lost and under just penalty of condemnation just like this one, but just like this one, simply casting our faith on Jesus and saying, Jesus, save me, please, by your mercy and by your grace because of what you're doing, not because of what I've done, saves This is what Jesus promised and what all the scriptures modeled in the Old Testament and are ex is explicitly explained in the New Testament. And this is why God wanted him hung on a cross to be cursed. This is why Jesus used all of his authority and all of his power to make sure he got to the cross. Because in the cross, he forgives. How? By taking onto himself the curse that should come onto us. I love we sang it earlier this morning. Shielded by his blood. Explained it to my kids a long time ago like this. The wrath of God, feel this firm. I mean, get, get a grimace on your face. I explained to my kids like this. The wrath of God is a fist coming, 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 coming at me, and Jesus steps in the middle. The fist doesn't go away. The fist falls on him and doesn't hit me at all. I hear the, I think, and I say, thank you. Why doesn't the fist just go away? Because God's righteous and must punish sin. Why doesn't the fist hit my jaw? Because God is gracious and merciful and saves.
The fist doesn't just go away. The wrath doesn't just dissipate because God is righteous and just and must punish sin. And for those who say, Jesus, please save, it doesn't hit me because God is gracious and merciful and saves. Behold the God who is. Holy, holy, holy. He will not abide and tolerate sin. He will not let another steal his glory. And gracious and merciful and full of love, steadfast mercy, he will provide himself the Lamb that all who trust him and him alone will be set free. This is the gospel and it is glorious. And this is the God of the gospel. He is glorious. What must we do with Jesus? We must say, help me or I am lost. But if you help me, I am saved. This is good news. He promised it to the condemned and otherwise hopeless man and he promises it to all who are weary and heavy laden and come to him and lay it all in front of him and say, save me please. He will forgive. This is good news. And you could say, That's also kind of cheap talk of a man hanging on a cross. Because they both died. The end. Lots of people say lots of really positive, nice things on their deathbed, so to speak. Talk's cheap. How do we know that what Jesus says and promises and warns about, that any of that's true? It takes us to the final observation. The cross brings judgment and salvation, and it brings testimony that Jesus is the king judged for salvation. Cross brings testimony that Jesus is the King judged for salvation. To properly hear the message of the cross and trust it, to make the right decision about what to do with Jesus, we have to hear all the testimony around this event. We can interpret properly what's going on here. We've got to gather some evidence. We move through this passage, twice more we hear spoken the verdict of unbiased witnesses. We saw it several times at trial from Pilate and from Herod. Here we see it again, the criminal in verse 41. This man has done nothing wrong. The centurion in verse 47, praising God, certainly this man was innocent. That's the repeated testimony that Luke puts in front of us. Jesus did not do anything wrong like they charged he did. That's the testimony 
heard, and also we see it even in the very act of him being crucified. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When cursed, he returned a blessing. As he taught, so he did. No hypocrisy here. He prayed for those who abused him and asked God to have mercy on them for what they were doing. And he did not scorn God the Father when he prayed, Lord, let there be some other way. Father, if there's another way, not, I don't want to drink this cup. And when God pushes the cup across the table to him and says, drink, he takes it and remains all the way to the end, faithfully dependent. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You are the one pouring out curse on me, and I put myself in your hands. Here, here's me. This is the righteous one. From start to finish, from the beginning of this gospel all the way to the very end of it, he is the righteous one, unjustly condemned. For what purpose? Well, there's another bit of ironic evidence here. Ironic because it's given to us by his critics as they scoff. Three times, mocking, scoffing people tell us how to judge Jesus. Tell us how to weigh these events here. It's ironic because they don't think it's true, but they speak the truth. The rulers scoffed in verse 35, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Soldiers also mocked. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And lastly, one of the criminals, so you're the Christ, then save yourself and us. The common point, if you were the Christ, you'd save yourself. If you were the Christ, because the Christ can't be overcome by death, the Christ, we know, reigns over the kingdom of God forever and ever. So death doesn't win when the Christ is here. So if you're the Christ, well then, stop this. Defeat death. But you're not, are you? Which is what they're mocking. They watch him die and say, see, you're not. The Christ would defeat death, but death is defeating you. Therefore, you're not the Christ. And that's the point of their mocking repeatedly. If you're the Christ, save yourself. But you're not, so you can't. Well, we've read the rest of the story. Very next column, right? Death doesn't win. They give us they give us the criteria by which we would judge. Is this one the Christ or not? Well, does death win or not? They think death wins. They stop reading too soon. Death doesn't win. The tomb is empty in the next column. And which is a greater defeat? I mean, think, you, you, you see somebody who dodges bullets and dodges bullets and dodges bullets. You might be impressed by that, but not as impressed as the person who takes them all in the chest and then gets up again. 
Because you kind of wonder, the person who dodges and dodges and dodges and dodges, what would happen if one ever got you? Well, I'll show you. He takes it. He takes death, goes to the grave for three days and comes out again. Death did not win. Death did not triumph. I triumphed over death because I am the Christ. But before all that, that's, that's the next section. Stay here in this passage and keep looking at the evidence here. Look at the sign hanging over his head, an ironic affirmation. Look at the noonday sun failing. What he's not describing in verses 44 into 45 is it getting overcast. What he's describing is 1 p.m. on a sunny day becoming like dark, like night. The kind of thing that everybody said, whoa. And the hair starts to stand up. Something weird is going on here. And then the curtain was torn in two. Just a simple sentence there, end of verse 45, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. What does that mean? <laughs> Something amazing, what that means. What is this curtain? The curtain is the stop, no entry sign hanging on heaven's door. The temple was God's plan. First it was a, a tent, a tabernacle, and then when the people of Israel settled, it became a building. The temple was God's plan, carefully described so as to be on earth, an earthly representation of what the heavenlies and heaven was, is. And it had various layers to it. You come in, you come in, you come in, you come in, until you get to the middle part called the, the most holy place or the holy of holies representing God's throne room itself. And you come in, you come in, you come in, you come in until you don't. And you can't. There's an inner place where God's earthly throne was, where the Ark of the Covenant sat. God's throne the angels of heaven overlooking it. There in a cloud dwelt God in the Old Testament. This is God's throne room and the temple's curtain hangs in front and says, and here you cannot come. Only the high priest, only once a year, only with the proper sacrifice to appease God's sin and cover it over for one more year. And then he backed out of the curtain and the curtain closed, and there's the presence of God that none of us can come into. Stop. No entry, says the curtain. And as Jesus is dying, that curtain is torn in half, clean through, top to bottom. As Jesus humbly commits his spirit into the hands of his Father, it's as if the Father opens the door to heaven and says, come on in. You and everybody who's piggybacking on you, come on in. 
the presence of God made available. This is the testimony of the cross. That in the death of Jesus, the mission was accomplished. Sin that kept out the unrighteous, that kept out the world, kept out all people. It is effectively, just like Jesus said, it is effectively covered. It is effectively removed once and for all in the death of this Jesus for those who trust him, separation from God dies when Jesus dies. Judgment from God dies when Jesus dies. Death itself dies when Jesus dies. And access into paradise is born, made real, made certain. Access into the presence of God him in whose presence is fullness of joy, pleasure forevermore. The temple's curtain is split open and we are bid come in through Jesus. The way really, honestly, truly is open, supernaturally opened by God when Christ died. So come to Jesus. That is the clear and obvious and hope-filled call to you. That's what this is about. That access to God is one. That judgment falls on Jesus so salvation can fall on you if you trust Him like that man in hopelessness, hoping only in Jesus did. Why do we gather every week to hear this story again? It is not just to inform ourselves of the facts. Countless people are familiar with the facts. It's to remind us and to help us to remember that this is true. This is true of God. This is God. The God who is holy and the God who is gracious. That's the God who is. And it's true of Him. And... You who trust him, it's true of you. This is true of your present, and it's true of your future. And we need to be reminded of that and to recall it and to see him and to see ourselves and to see what's going on now and to see what's coming to us because we still live in a world that is full of rejection of Jesus and we still live with hearts that are full of insanity. We are inclined, prone to wander, and we are easily tempted and drawn away. And it is simple, it is simple to wake up and ask, really? So hear the old story again. Yes, really. The temple's curtain was torn open, and as we'll see, so was the tomb. The judgment of God did indeed fall. And it falls in one of two places, either on Jesus or on you. Are you shielded behind him? And if so, if so, blessed and fortunate and happy are you. The way has been opened for you into the presence of him who is your life. 
and he will come again for you. On him set your hope. Remember this story and live in it. This is who you are. This is who he is. This is good news. Let me pray. Lord, will you restore to us our sanity? Will you renew us? Will you draw us away from temptation and draw us away from doubt and fear? All of which is put in perspective by you, the God of glory, securing for us our present and our future. Make that real and big, more alarming to us than everything that we see and meet in the world. Make it real and big and fill us with life. Lord, would you save and would you sanctify, would you build up your people? Would you be honored in that? Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your determination to get there. Thank you for showing it to us. Never let us wander out of sight of the cross. It's to see it and to live in it. This is life to us. You are a good and gracious God, and we say thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.